0: Well, what is going on, Coastal? How is everybody? Come on. You glad to be in church today? Man, I hope you're glad to be here. Some of you are like, you look nothing like Pastor TJ. And uh, he's way cooler than me. But I am really, really grateful to be here. My name is David. I'm the lead pastor of a church in Massachusetts called Lights on Church. And um, this is like home away from home for me. Look at the person beside you and say, he must be the crazy cousin. Go ahead. Tell somebody. Uh, but I, I love being here. This is one of my favorite things to get to do. I, I always prefer when I get to be here when TJ and Shayla are around. So I'm, I'm sad to miss them, but I'm glad to be with you. I, uh, I have been connected to your church since it's very, very, very beginning. And uh, so whenever I get a chance to come down here and preach and see what's going on, man, it just fills me up. But I'm a, I, I have a wife. I have three kids. For those of you that don't know me, we live in New England. So getting to escape down here to Florida for a little bit is always a blessing. Although the humidity has started, I'm just saying. I walked out of the hotel doors this morning and immediately was blinded by glasses covered in moisture. So um, that is not normal for us. So I'm trying to figure that out. But, uh, but I'm grateful to be, be down here with you for a little bit. Um, as I said, I'm married. My wife and I have been married for 30 years this past December. We got married when we were seven. Come on, somebody. And um, we've got three kids. Uh, they're 28, 26, 23. I've got a son-in-law and two grandsons. And um, I got pictures from my wife being down here. Uh, she sent me pictures. She, my grandson has been staying in my space in my bed. And so I'm a little uptight about that. We're going to have a meeting when I get home. But it's but it, it's uh, it's great to be down here with you. I want to welcome everybody that's joining us online, wherever you're at. I just personally want to thank you for joining us at Coastal for church today. And um, I, I have to say to you, I, I don't know whether or not you know how special what you're a part of is. I um, I, I could not be more proud of what has happened at Coastal Church over. The last 10 plus years, what God has done through this church in this region, affecting it, changing it, challenging it, growing it, reaching it with the good news of Jesus. And um, and I don't know if you're familiar with just how special this is. If you've been coming to Coastal for a long time, you've walked the journey, you've seen when it was up. Man, I remember preaching in Coconut Creek High School yeah, yeah. and driving over to the movie theater in Pompano Beach. That's all I'm saying. It was preaching Coconut Creek, getting in the car with TJ who drives excellently. <laughs> we would get in his pickup truck. He had a big old pickup truck. And we would drive over to Pompano and preach over there in the movie theater. And we'd get back in the truck and we'd drive all the way back to Coconut Tree preach again in the high school. I remember those days. And to see what God has done and where he's brought this church to is not only incredible and honoring of the Lord, but I'm telling you what you're experiencing here not just the presence of God, but the nature of community and the favor of God that's fallen on this house that you're walking. I don't mean you're walking into his favor because you've got a bigger place to be. I mean, the favor of God has, there's evidence of it. And one of the evidences of it is what he has provided to be a net to catch and retain and harvest people that need a relationship with Jesus. These, the evidence of what God has done is huge. And I, I just, as we start today, I want to say to you. That what you're a part of is special. I, uh, I've known TJ and Shayla for a long time, as I said. And, and, and one of my favorite things about them is they are incredible learners. If you know them, they, they lo- they're just incredible learners. They're reading all the time. They're asking questions all the time. In fact, when we planted our church in 2006, Life Song was the very first Ark church plant in New England. It's- is the little church up in New England, number 32. ARC has now planted 1,077 churches. We were number 32. And in the early years after I got to know TJ and Shayla, he would call me. Coastal had planted, and he would say things like, hey, uh, Pastor David, what do you do with this? Or how do you solve this problem? Or what is this system? Or how do you, do? like, he was constantly asking questions all the time, he and Shayla. And I loved it. We loved sharing what was going on that God was doing in our church. And uh, about five years ago, his church got bigger than mine. And I started calling him going, hey, so how do you do do that thing? What do you do with that system? And um, never once in my experience with your pastors has there been a moment where they haven't been a learner in humility. They ask questions out of a place of humility. We don't know it all. We haven't figured it out. If it weren't for the grace of God, this would not be happening. We are graciously, uh, we have the privilege of leading a church that God is moving in. Not, we're so awesome, look at our great church. And I'm just telling you, that is uncommon. I know a lot of pastors in a lot of places, your pastors are incredibly unique and special. And so as you get ready to go into a new season, man, how many of you are excited about the next season of what's going on at Coastal? Come on. When Pastor TJ called and said, hey, Pastor, can you come down and preach on the 30th? I was like, are you in the new building yet? He's like, no. But right after you leave, we will be. It's like, you suck, man. Okay. So um, you're getting ready to go into a season. Uh, that I don't know if, I, I, you probably are prepared for it in the sense that there are teams and participation and, and you've had to grow systems and understandings. And, and if you're not on a team, I just want to say you need to get on a team. Not, and listen to me, not because of what you'll do, but because it will do, what it will do in you will change you over the course of time. And so the season you're going into is, um, is incredible. Can't wait, can't wait to celebrate it. And all of the things that God will do in the next stages and next seasons of what God is going to do. But right now I want to talk to you a little bit about some things that should mark you. And here's the reason. Because when you step into the next season, you move into the new building, you have new platforms, the church has new visibility, you have new opportunity, there will be new people, there will be some characteristics that will be being evaluated, looked at, there will be some discovery that's going on in those who are looking on. The question is, do you realize that what they're looking at is not the building, they're looking at you. They're not, they, they may have come because they saw the big building. They may have shown up because they heard a story. But when they get here, they aren't looking at that. They're looking at you. And so today, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Let's pray, and then I'm going to take you through a few things. Father God, we thank you for your presence. Lord, I thank you that we get a chance to worship you freely and openly, even with a tornado warning. And that, God, you aren't afraid of tornadoes. You show up in your house because it's your house and you inhabit the praises of your people. So we're grateful that you're here, God. Would you grow us and change us and shape us more into your likeness and prepare us for what you have ahead. In the mighty name of Jesus, everyone said, amen, amen. How many of you like movies? Who likes movies? Anybody like movies? Okay, how many of you think movies are of the devil? We should never watch them. Nobody? Oh, oh one. Okay, great. We've got a small group for you. It's, it's right out in that parking lot. No, just, I'm just kidding. Um but I love movies, and uh, one of my favorite movies is Gladiator. Anybody, anybody know that movie? Okay. All right, a few of you. So um, I want to I help you connect to something that Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians. In fact, if you have your Bible, I would love if you turn to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to read a little scripture there together today. But in the movie, The Gladiator, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin it for you. But the story of the movie is that there's a, a guy by the name of Maximus, and he's the general of all the armies of Rome. He's an incredible leader. He has conquered the known lands for Marcus Aurelius, the emperor, the Caesar. He has led men into battle. He's fought. He's, he's uh, courageous and skilled, and he's an inspiring leader. The men follow him. He is excellent at what he does, and he commands the loyalty of the army. And so they have uh, kind of this one last battle in the movie, and then... Uh, Maximus wants to go home, but he's not going to be allowed to go home because the son of Caesar kills Caesar. And in the moment that that happens, Maximus has this uh, kind of suspicion, and as a result, he gets arrested. They take him away to kill him, take him out in the woods, they're going to kill him. But because he's the super general guy, he defeats them, I mean, he kills them both. But in the process of getting free, he gets wounded. His arm gets wounded, sword to the arm. And so he, he rides off on a horse. He's wounded and bleeding and eventually falls to the ground. It looks like, you know, life could be over. But he gets captured and ends up being taken from a place of great prominence to a, great, a place of great suffering. He was sold into slavery. He gets taken to this marketplace. He's sold. And the guy that buys him wants to train him up to be a gladiator. And he notices the cut on his arm, says he's rotten. But he also notices the mark on his arm. He has a, a brand on his arm. And he says this is the mark of the legion. He is owned by the country, the the city of Rome. The emperor owns him. He has an allegiance and a loyalty that is declared in his body that all who would see him and know him would know who his allegiance is to, why he's there, that he's owned by something other than himself, that there is obligation and dedication, in fact, that's branded into his body. Now, Maximus gets bought and he gets taken, and he starts his gladiator training. But one day, the most important scene for us in this conversation, he is in his room after training. He's sitting against the wall, and one of his friends walks in to see him. And as he walks in, Mark, uh, uh, Maximus has in his hand a very, very sharp stone. Maybe it is even a piece of glass. But it's very sharp, and he, uh, he is cutting away at the brand on his, on his arm. He's, it's, it's kind of gory, right? Look at the person beside you and say, It's a little gory. Go ahead. It's a little gory. Look at the person on the other side and say, but I can handle it. I can handle it. I'm a grown up. Okay. So he's cutting away at the mark on his arm. He's, he's, He's cutting it away. And his friend says to him, isn't that the mark of your gods? And he says, he just kind of chuckles like, yeah. Because it's an indicator in that culture, people had branded onto their body the gods that they worshiped. They would have a mark put on their being. In some cases, lots of marks that told everyone that saw them who they were dedicated to, where their allegiance was found, who they were committed to, who they would die for, who they worshipped. It was marked in their body. And Maximus is cutting this mark away of the legion. He says, won't that anger your gods? And he chuckles. And his, his purpose here is to make very clear to everyone who ever sees him, he is no longer to be identified with Rome. His allegiance is no longer to be found there. And if he didn't get rid of the mark, everyone who saw it would conclude who he's connected to. Look at what Galatians chapter six says. Paul writes in Galatians chapter six, verse 17. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now some of you in here right now are making a note. Get a tattoo later today. Go ahead get a tattoo. The Greek word here. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The Greek word is the Greek word stigma. And it's only used one time in the entire Greek New Testament. It's in Galatians 6. And uh, we've, we see it one time in the Old Testament. In the Song of Solomon it says. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver referencing the identifying marker is not in the body, but it's on the body. And so here's what I want you to understand. Paul is writing to the church at Galatia from the prison in Rome. He's writing a letter from a place where he is not free to a church that God used him to start however many years before, and he's instructing and coaching them in their, their walk and their following in the way. And the church at Galatia had kind of drifted. They'd said yes to Jesus, they'd started gathering, but they were drifting back into a A false faith that was proclaimed by what are called the Judaizers. Ones who wanted even those who've chosen to follow Jesus and come out of a a, a non-Hebrew background. They're Gentiles to fall into Jewish law by being circumcised. And Paul's writing to them and saying, hey, 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 hey! they don't know what they're talking about. Why are you letting someone add to the faith that you've already found in Jesus? Why are you drifting away from the freedom you found back into bondage? That's what he's, now listen to me. He's writing about bondage and freedom from a place of bondage. He's sitting in a prison with chains around his ankles, imprisoned, but his soul is free. He is sitting in prison looking around at markers all around him of declaration of devotion to an empire that is considered their God. In fact, that was the nature of the culture. It wasn't just the movie. It wasn't just Paul writing this. In fact, this was all over the place. If you went to all these countries at this, in, in this kind of time in history, you would find that people marked their bodies with devotional indicators to a God. And he's looking around and sees markers about the empire in the prison cell, outside the bars, on the chains, on the armor of the guards. And everything about him is seeing markers that designate devotion. And he says to the people in Galatia, let's not cause me any trouble for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. And here's what he has. He's been stoned. So he's got bruises. He he probably has healing from broken bones. He has, he's been beaten, whipped, stoned. He declares it all to us in the gospels. And in the midst of his being beaten, he's declaring his devotion. And so here's what I want to say to you is you have some devotion to demonstrate. And this is the, the, the point Paul is making. He writes this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jew or Greek or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many You're you're in an incredible house. But can I tell you, there are far more than you that are here loving Jesus, worshiping together, that need to understand and know the Jesus that has rescued you. And so when Paul says this, he ends this whole section. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And then he says this, verse 1 of chapter 11. So follow my example as I follow Christ. Follow my example. In other words, look at me. And how I'm living, live like me. Because I'm looking at Jesus. And Jesus was beaten and mocked and abused and bruised. And I'm walking after him. And that means my body physically and our body collectively is going to look a little beaten and bruised. And as we bear on our body the marks of Jesus, everyone who sees us will know where our allegiance is. And as a result, many will be saved. So here's the big idea I want you to write down. A life lived in the way of Jesus will have markings that identify it that way. A life lived in the way of Jesus will look different than a life lived not in the way of Jesus. Now, I'm not not just talking about I'm not just talking about purity. I'm talking about there will be characteristics of the culture of the church that are different than the culture of the world. And if we know what they are and we endeavor to walk in them, everyone that shows up in this place will see the difference between this body marked by Christ and one that is not. And so what do those look like? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to read the first few verses together. Um, I've got three or four things for you. Here's the first one. Galatians chapter 6 says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer, look at that, if another believer is overcome by some sin, look at the person beside you and say, I don't sin. Go ahead, tell them. Look at the person on the other side and say, they're a liar. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer, not a, not a person who doesn't yet know Jesus, If another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Here's what I want you to write down. We surround, we don't stomp on those who stumble. This is a marker that differentiates who we're allegiant to. The culture that we live in is all about being sure that when someone's down, they help them stay there. When someone messes up, You know, falls apart. Business is right. Like the culture is really good at making sure that if you stumble, you stay down. And the reason is because if you're down, I'm up. If you're on the ground and I'm standing, I'm better. I'm higher. I'm taller. I'm more visible. My ego is fed. I feel better about myself. I have someone to compare myself to, which Paul speaks about. And the outcome is I feel good about me, but not because I'm worthy of feeling good, but because you, I can help feel bad. And Paul says a mark of the church, the church at Galatia. He's not just writing to you, he's writing to y'all. He's not writing to one, he's writing to the body. And he says, "Dear brothers and sisters, that's everybody." Gently and humbly. And he doesn't say just anybody. Look, listen to me. He doesn't say anybody help him up. He says, "You who are godly." He didn't have to say that. He could have just said, "Brothers and sisters, if someone falls, help him up." He says, dear brothers and sisters, you who are godly, and this is what I want you to understand, is that means there are people in the church, in that church, not just, this, not just that church, this church, there are people in the church who are at church but aren't yet godly. Look at the person beside you and say, this is heavy today. Go ahead. Look at the person on the other side and say, I didn't come to church for this. Here's what that means. And, and this is, I'm just telling you, this is, The season you're going into demands that you get this. Paul says those who are godly help them up gently and humbly. And you're about to step into a season where the people that you're used to seeing and the number of people that go to this church is going to double or triple. And you're going to show up and you're not going to have your favorite seat. Even though there's going to be three, four times as many seats, you ain't going to have your favorite seat. And you're going to have some people there who don't talk like maybe you wish they would talk. There are going to be people who walk in, they don't smell like you think they should smell. They don't act like you think they should act. And their arrival is not evaluating the place. It's evaluating the people. It's whether or not you who are godly can help me up. Are you godly? And I don't even know what that means. I just know I'm not. So I'm looking for someone who is. I'm trying to determine if you have the fragrance of Jesus. Are the marks of the Savior on this place? Or is this just not another building full of people who are all about the country club and not the hospital? And Paul's writing to the church at Galatia and says, if you're, if you're a God-following, Christ-following congregation, follow me as I follow Christ, gently and humbly help somebody up. Now, this, where, where it says if another believer is overcome by some sin, another translation would say caught in sin. And when we think of that word caught and caught in sin, we, we picture the kind of the moment of discovery. If, you, if I were to say, man, have you, ever, have you ever heard a story about someone getting caught in sin? You would picture the story of some man and woman in a tryst in a hotel room or in a, you know, somebody's house, and someone comes and they hear about it and they sneak in the back door, they get the master key and they open the door, blah, blah, ha, ha, you're caught. That's what you'd picture, caught in some sin. But a better, better understanding of what Paul is saying here is not that kind of caught. A better translation is ambushed, a better translation is tripped up. What Paul's actually saying contextually is that if some believer is overtaken or surprised by some sin. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that it is our nature to be preoccupied with ourself. And if we're not careful as we're going in the way and walking in the way, we will find ourselves tripped up and stumbling over something that we didn't anticipate, prepare for, or, or, or make sure we saw ahead of time. We get We get caught up. We get surprised and ambushed by some sin. And here's what I want you to understand. This is so important. This is why he says, you who are godly, gently and humbly. Because the problem with us as believers is we can get educated further, far beyond our level of obedience. And we can believe that because we know a lot, we are godly. But we don't act a lot like God, even though we know a lot about him. The problem is that in our spiritual arrogance, we get tripped up. And caught by some sin and end up on the ground. And if our culture is not one that lifts up instead of stomps on. When you fall, you'll fall away. You won't just fall on the ground. You'll trip and back away. Because the culture will be one of, I want to be above you. And you have a opportunity, Coastal. To be a place that surrounds, not stomps on people who stumble. The second part of Galatians chapter 1 Uh, says this, and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. So I want you to write this down. Another mark of a, uh, the mark of Jesus on this church and on on the church needs to be that we endeavor to walk in spiritual meekness, not spiritual pride. Spiritual meekness, not spiritual pride. The idea here is, is that as we're, as we're walking in the way of Jesus, we discover and we recognize that no matter how far along we've gotten, how long we've walked with Jesus, we're never so far forward that we cannot find ourselves falling. We, are, we hold our relationship with God and our understanding of our growth and discovery and who Jesus is very humbly. There was a, a professor by the name of Dr. Lauren Nordgren. He's a senior lecturer at Northwestern Universities. Kellogg School of Management in Chicago. That's a pretty serious deal right there. And he ran a series of experiments that placed college students into tempting situations. And when I read that, I was like, man, you don't have to help them. You don't have to help them. They figure that out all by themselves. I don't know if you know college students, but they're all about figuring out how to be in tempting situations. That's just what they do. So so he, he ran some experiments by placing college students in tempting situations. And here were the things. To smoke eat junk food. When I read that, I was like, man, that's not a temptation. That's that's a a three-day-a-week meal for college students. Okay. To smoke, eat junk food, or forego studying. And the research found that people often display what's called a restraint bias. And a restraint bias is is this. It's that we tend to overestimate how much self-control we will have against temptation when we're not in the heat of the moment. And I remember when I was in high school and uh, like, like, you know, many of you maybe in, in your high school years, my youth pastor and my, my parents, their friends, we, we, had, we had the sex talk. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like the sex talk. And, um, and, and as I got into high school, my, my parents and uh, my youth pastor said to me, they said, listen, David, the, the worst time to figure out your convictions about premarital sex is when you're in the backseat of a car with a girl. That's the worst time to figure it out. Like if you're unsure, I don't know what I, I no, but I think probably, and then you're in the backseat of a car with a girl and, and like the moment to decide, nope, I'm not going to sin is not then. You think you're stronger than you are. And when you get in the backseat of that car, I promise you, you're going to find some logic as to why you don't need to live in that conviction. Because we all have a restraint bias. We think we're stronger than we are until we get in the heat of the moment. Our restraint bias causes us to think that we can handle more temptation than we actually can. In fact, Dr. Nordgren warned, listen, that those who are most confident about their self-control are the most likely to give into temptation. And that's not David saying that. That's super certified, educated Dr. Lorgren saying to you and me what Paul said to the Galatian church. That when you think you are incapable of falling is when you are most likely to find yourself stumbling. And so you and I, as we step into not just the next season, but in the in the course of our walk with our family. Your cousin, your neighbor, your, your, your brother, the, the family member who's who's watched your life, they're trying to determine, do you see yourselves as spiritually egotistical? Are you spiritually prideful? Have you gotten free of some things? And now that you got free of some things, you better than everybody else? Or do you walk in a way that says, no, 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 no. Very humbly, very gently, with my eyes on the walk in front of me, Do I want to carefully navigate the journey of my walk in the world? Because as I walk, others see me and I'm following Jesus. And so they attribute to Jesus the way I walk and the way I live and the way I act. Man, this yesterday, uh, um, yeah, yesterday I went and had lunch at the little coffee house or little coffee shop. Oh, yeah, 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 you know it. Okay. Yeah, okay, that place over there. And um. And I went in there, ordered my food. I sat down, I was, I, was, I was reflecting on the message a little bit and just kind of praying. And, and I, it occurred to me like, I am not in my normal context, right? I, I live in Massachusetts. Then nobody knows me down here. I, I could walk into 57 different stores, nobody would know anything. I could behave however I want to, and in my head, no one would know the difference. I wouldn't have any negative reflection on Jesus because no one knows the marks on my body because I'm out of my context. But here's what occurred to me. What occurred to me is there could be people in this coffee shop that go to Coastal that heard me preach the last time I was here. There could be people that left. Can I just tell you, half my church has moved to Florida over the last three years. (laughs) There to be some people sitting in a little coffee shop They're like oh yeah I remember him 100 years ago when I went to his church like and if I walk in a place of spiritual pride that says what little bit of sin I do no one will know about when I'm behind closed doors I can behave how I want or when I'm out in public I don't have to be as attentive I can walk with my chin up and my chest out not worried about anything and suddenly I can be caught up and ambushed In a way that now I'm on the ground. I need someone who's godly to help me up. Because my spiritual pride kept my eyes on me and on where I want to be. Instead of on the road in front of me. Humbly saying, Lord, I'm following in your footsteps. Walking with you. So Paul continues down through these first few verses. And he says, verse 2. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. Man, that sounds like a good marker. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. Verse 4, he says, pay careful attention to, you, to your own work. For then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to someone else. Can I have um, those two things right there? There's a, uh, yeah, a mirror and a magnifying glass. I want you to write this down. A mark of the body is that we engage the truth of scripture like a mirror, not a magnifying glass. So this is a vanity mirror. And um, most of you know what this is. Um, vanity mirror is kind of a cool thing. Um, I, I, I love it, right? It sits on our counter in our in our bathroom. And um, as my wife's getting ready or as I'm getting ready or whatever, like you glance over at the vanity mirror to get a good look at how you look, right? You're getting all, you say, oh, I look good, right? And um, and eventually, if you use this the way it's designed, you, uh, you take it and you, you flip it around. Yep, yep, right there. I heard that amen right there. <laughs> you flip it around because this is the 3X or 5X side. And if you're standing like this, you can't see anything. But if you get down kind of right about there, my Lord. That's some work to do. Um, But it shows you all of the imperfections. It shows you the little blackheads and the extra hair you have growing out of that ear or whatever. So you can attend to the parts of you that make you not pretty. The parts of you that are messy and blemished. That's what the mirror is for. Now, this is a whole other thing. This is a magnifying glass, and uh, how many of y'all have one of these when you were a kid? Mm Mm-hmm. Some of you right now are remembering what you did with it when you were a kid. The intention of a magnifying glass is to make what is in front of us that's small very big. It's intended to allow our eyesight to see something else and to magnify it. And make it really visible and highlight it in our eyes. We can look at, oh man, that little 12 point font just looks like it's 18 or 24 now. Like it just, it changes what's in front of you, but it shows you nothing about you. It simply puts you in a higher level of assessment of what you see through it. Here's the thing. When I was a kid, I had one of these. And I remember going down to the park near my house with one of these. And I'll go down to the park uh, with magnifying glass when I discovered, right? I don't know what I was in, second grade or something. When we first used one of these, and my teacher was teach us about magnifying glasses or whatever. But I was young, eight, nine, whatever, eight, nine years old. I had one of these, and I was like, oh, this is awesome. And I went down to the park. Come on, how many of y'all in here murderers? Go ahead, just tell me right now. And I got down on my knee and I found where all the anthills were. Somebody right now? And um, and I went, and I messed up the anthills. And suddenly there were ants everywhere. You know what I'm talking about? And um, my first thing that I did was I did this. And I was like, oh my gosh, those ants are so big. And, um, and then I noticed that wherever I had the magnifying glass, it was brighter. And I don't know if it was the first time or the third time, but eventually what I did is what all, what all of you did. I took this magnifying glass and I held it at just the right angle. And at just the right distance. And as a result of my positioning the magnifying glass the way I did. The sunlight was focused so acutely that we could kill the ants. We could take the sunlight that was intended to bring life. And because we were using a piece of glass the wrong way. We could focus it and do damage to others. Instead of allowing the light to do what the light was supposed to do. And here's what I want to say to you. You have a choice about how you're going to engage the word of God. And whether the marks of Jesus on your life are going to be simply the sunlight that you've experienced. But that you overly use to hurt somebody else with the word of God. Instead of allowing the word of God to be like a mirror that allows you to see where you need to be better, and how you need to be refined by God, and how your walk with Jesus needs to be gently attended to, and carefully paid attention to. God, show me the places where I need to pluck, and I need to poke, and where you need to refine, because God, I am not beautiful. I may like the vanity mirror, but let there be no vanity in me, that I would be refined into your likeness, and humbly walk after you, and follow after Paul has followed after Christ, that as I where you walk. I have the fragrance of Jesus and everyone that sees me knows that I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. My wife loves, loves to be like the vanity mirror on my, on my face. She, I bear on my face the marks of my wife's fingernails. She has a way of seeing every detail and I hate it when she goes to pick. Come on, husbands, look at your wives and say, we feel like this. I'm getting free right now. <laughs> Janelle will come find me and she'll point to me like, I got to fix this. She'll, ah! I hate it. It hurts. Not always. Sometimes it's okay. But A lot of times it doesn't feel great. But The outcome of what she did makes me better makes me healthier makes me look better it's for my good and I want to submit to you that Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 6 let each person examine his own work mirror or magnifying glass examine your own work take a look at how the marks in your body are visible or not Take a look at how you maybe have amassed your life in a way that makes you look spiritually uh, mature and look godly but not actually be. Examine your own work because as you do, then you can take pride in yourself alone. It's so interesting. Listen, this is such a cool thing. Paul writes about pride right after he writes about humility. He says be humble those who are godly gently and humbly he talks about not being prideful and then he uses the word pride in chapter 4 and we read or in verse 4 we read a lot about pride it's not a good thing God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble, all this. And then he says, but we can take pride in himself alone. Here's what, here's what I think Paul is speaking to a little bit. He says, Don't, and, and you won't compare yourself with someone else. I think what he's saying here is you cannot take pride like, look at me, I'm proud. But if you ever had a moment where your kid does, did something amazing, like they completed something at school, or your grandchild you know, said their first word, and you think they're going to be the next Einstein. You know what I'm saying? And, and there's a moment, and, and, and you are proud of it, not pride-filled. That's what Paul is saying to you and to me. He says, as you examine your own work, you walk away from the examination and the refinement and the submission and the humility with a sense of pride. Not pridefulness, but pride. I am proud of the relationship and the work that God is doing in me. Because as I remember what I looked like, before I let the Word of God examine me and the Holy Spirit refine me, and I remember what I used to look like, and now I know what I do look like, I don't think I'm amazing. I think God is, and I'm proud of the journey that we're walking. And I'm not looking at your journey going, you got a ways to go. I'm way up the road further than you. I'm looking at where I'm comparing myself to where I was, and as the Word of God and the Holy Spirit refine me, I take pride in the journey of walking with God to look More like him. And so Coastal, my prayer is that we would recognize some of the characteristics just in the beginning. I mean, you need to read all of chapter 6. Before you come back next Sunday and you start to step into this new season, you need to go read this whole chapter. But just the first four or five verses alone give us three or four characteristics of of the marks of Jesus that should mark the body of Christ. Before I pray for you, Aesop, of Aesop's fables, says this. He says, a man carries two bags over his shoulder. The one with his own sins hangs behind him. And the one with everybody else's hangs in the front. What he was saying is what Paul says. I don't like seeing what's broken in me, but I'm very acutely aware of what's broken in everybody else. And that's a dangerous place to live. But more importantly, it forfeits the opportunity that God has placed you here in this place at this time, in this season, like very specifically, this is not accidental. Acts 17 says God has placed you in a time, in a place for a reason, and your place and time is here and now. And so my encouragement to you, in fact, my exhortation to you is that you step away from today with an examination of yourself. You let the word of God and the Holy Spirit himself shape, change, refine, modify, humble you, In such a way that everyone who floods this place would see that in this body, in this body, there are the marks of Jesus. Would you stand to your feet? Let me pray for you today. Just bow your heads, close your eyes. And would you just turn your hands toward heaven? Maybe you would just want to hold your palms in front of you. Maybe you want to reach up real high, just a moment of surrender to the Lord. But I just want to pray over you. Father God, I thank you for this church. Lord, I thank you for the years and years and years of work that you have done through the, the leadership and the body of believers here, God. There are marks of you on this church already. But God, as we step away from this moment, would you even now, as, as your Holy Spirit is brought to you, each individual's heart, a place where maybe they need to be refined, where maybe the mark isn't very visible. Maybe it is a place of spiritual pride. Maybe it is a place of comparison. Maybe it is a place of arrogance. God, whatever it is, as they have kind of allowed it to surface, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be like a kind of a, a divine esthetician that removes what needs to be removed, that cleans up the complexion, that refines us to reflect you in a way that, as Paul said, you can find on our body, this church, the marks of Jesus. God, we want what's ahead for this church to not be impeded by our unwillingness to be brought into new levels of refinement. That God, who we are, what we do, and the way we live as we follow after you would be visible. That everyone who walks through the doors would say, this is a place that is genuine in their followership of Jesus. And as a result, God, you would bring many to the saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. Now, while you've got your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to ask, if you've never said yes to Jesus, maybe today you would be willing to say, I, I want to surrender today. I want to acknowledge Christ as my Lord and Savior and ask him to take away a- remove all of my sin, forgive me for it because of what he, what Jesus did on the cross. And if that's you today, on the count of three, I want you to put your hand up real high and then I'm going to pray a prayer that you can just repeat where you are and acknowledge Jesus Christ. And then we want to help you take steps to walk with him. So if that's you right now, put your hand up real high. One, two, three. Who would say that's me? I see that hand. Who else would say that's me? I, I need to say yes to Jesus today and I want to look like him. I I want others to know that I'm fully committed. I'm not going to just check the box at church, but I'm committed. Who else would say that? Thank you. Well, you can put your hands down. And all of you who raised your hand, would you just pray this prayer that I'm praying? Just pray it right there where you are. And then we want to help you walk with Jesus. Just say, Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he died for me. He paid for my sin, and you raised him back to life. Today, God, I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. Would you make me new because of Jesus? And today, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I call you my Lord and my Savior. It's in your name I pray. Amen and amen. Come on, everybody.